0: We are joined today by a very special guest, somebody who I've followed for years in the industry. Um, Katerina's coming in from Chicago, but also from Chicago, we have uh, Perry Romanowski, who, who does uh, Chemist's Corner, who um, is a very highly respected cosmetic scientist. And as I say, I've followed him for many years. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Uh, thank you very much, Perry, for joining us
1: today.
2: Hello, Perry. We are super happy.
1: Well, hello. Thank you both for having me on, and I'm uh, I'm excited to be on. I've uh, been listening to your podcast, uh, your fledgling podcast, and I'm happy to be one of the first guests. Sam, he's been listening to our podcast.
0: I think you may have been twisting his arm somewhat. Yes,
1: actually, I'm a huge podcast fan, and when I saw uh, yours come up in my feed, I'm like, "Hmm, what's this all about?" And uh, I've I've enjoyed your perspective on the cosmetic industry.
2: Thank you. Thank you. So, Perry. Um, I mean tell us uh give a, give us and our listeners a bit of a background on on where you started and and you know why you started writing books about cosmetic science and uh and so on.
1: Oh sure. Thanks. Uh well, let's see. I went to school uh to college and got a degree in chemistry only because originally I had a deg- was getting a degree in biology but When I got to my first senior year in college, I noticed there were a lot more jobs in chemistry than biology. So I spent an extra year, got a degree in chemistry, and just ended up uh, working for a shampoo company. Uh, I didn't have any particular ambition to get into the cosmetic industry, but I stumbled into it. And, you know, I found that I really enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoy the application of science, so it's not all theoretical. And you make products that people actually use and make people happy and so i thought it was pretty cool and i i stuck around the industry for the rest of my career really
2: (laughs) but perry i mean before we started the recording you mentioned um that when you started out the the industry was well the how can i say the the community of formulators it was very closed and people didn't really um talk about the profession um and how do you see that's changing and and you know what's different uh from when you started and today do you think
1: yeah i would agree when i got started in the in the early 90s and uh essentially when you got a job as a formulator Uh, working in industry, you learned the formulation tips and tricks within your company, but you didn't share information outside of your company. Uh, I was part of the Society of Cosmetic Chemists, so I got to meet other cosmetic chemists, but they did things differently, and we we were social with each other, but we did not share information on how to do things. And I thought that was a real shame getting in the industry because they don't teach you anything about formulating when you're going through college. Uh, colleges specialize in teaching you more to become a college chemistry professor rather than a formulator who applies science. And so when you do do get a degree in chemistry and get in the industry, you essentially have to learn how to formulate Uh, from scratch. Now, having a chemistry background helps a lot, but it doesn't really teach you to become a formulator. That's all stuff you have to learn uh, on the job. And a lot of that, when I was first started, a lot of that was done with my colleagues who worked at the company that I worked at. And I, I, I got very good at making the formulas and the types of formulas we make. But I didn't learn a lot about like formulas that I didn't make. And like uh, color cosmetics, for example, and I had to go and learn all that stuff on my own. Now there were a few uh, books and resources, but a lot of those are really old, and uh, a lot of those, a lot of the information was really out of date. And so, but over time, um, with the ease of publishing, say the, the internet developed over that time, and people just became a lot more open. And I, I was a big believer in. Uh, being open with uh, how to do science, because ultimately I look at myself as a scientist, not as a person in industry. And I think we can only advance cosmetic formulating by sharing as much information as we can.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I, I recognize that um, that problem um, is when I, because when I was studying chemical engineering, I actually picked I selected courses which I thought would be useful when i was working as a formulator but there weren't any like any as you say any tailored courses so i had to take some um polymer courses i took something in some things in um colloid chemistry and uh yeah just mixed it all but it is very tricky like it is, it was a very uh, it was very uh difficult to kind of find information like what do you do if you want to make cosmetic products um so i, I can totally uh, relate to what you're saying there
1: and there's still a lot of trial and error. Uh, it's it. I I do the a, a cosmetic science forum, and people are asking questions, and a lot of people are are newbies to formulating, and they're asking questions which honestly people don't have answers to because people have if people have figured it out themselves, they haven't published about it.
2: Sam, what's your experience in learning how to
1: formulate?
0: I took a, a diploma in cosmetic science from the SCS, which is our version of your SCC, Perry.
1: Yeah, and they have an excellent that's an excellent program that they have too.
0: I feel as though if you're a brand owner, you really need to understand what you're selling. Because I didn't know anything, I used to ask the most ridiculous questions, but everybody was very accommodating and um and very generous with their information.
1: That is one of the things I've I've found in the cosmetic industry. Uh everybody's very cordial, very nice. Uh there's not a lot of cutthroat. Um um, and there's also a lot of, uh, somebody we say, moving around, like a lot of people, um, you know, work in uh, one company, they'll move to another company. And pretty soon everybody, you know, everybody who's worked at one company or another.
2: Yeah,
0: that's so true.
2: It's a small but friendly club. <laughs> I know you've written books
0: on on formulating, Perry, and um, cosmetic science. I believe uh, one of your books is in its third edition at the moment. Ha- who who buys your who buys those books
1: well originally the the book that you're talking about is called Beginning Cosmetic Chemistry and that book came out as a collaboration when I first started in the industry you know I said to myself, hey um, there should be a book for people just coming out of college and getting into the industry uh, to learn this stuff and another colleague of mine uh, agreed and so we co-authored a book, Beginning Cosmetic Chemistry, and it was kind of uh, sort of my journey about how to learn to formulate. And that was published through uh, Cosmetics and Toiletries, one of the premier uh, industry journals. And eventually, it was originally uh, published as articles, and those articles got compiled into this book, Beginning Cosmetic Chemistry. And the book has been, like you said, into the, th- to the third edition. But it was always targeted at a uh, people with chemistry degrees or people coming into the cosmetic industry, maybe without a chemistry degree, uh, to get a sense of what formulating is all about and the the beginning basics that you need to know.
0: Brilliant. I think it's such a good idea because most people rely on, there's a book here called Harry's Cosmetology, I think it's called. Yeah, that's it. It was written so long ago and um, advances have been made uh, in the way that we formulate and and the ingredients that we use. Um, so, so, uh, it's great that, that there are still people willing to put the hours in and the time in to, to update that.
1: Yeah, there is, uh, there is a lot of change now that Harry's cosmeticology book, that's a, that's a good book. They just, uh, did their ninth edition of it and now it's this gigantic tome. Uh, but for, from, from my vantage point, that's a, that one's probably a bit more advanced for, for and it's for people who already know a bit about formulating and and uh, are looking to get a little bit more detailed. But for people just coming in, um, really something like beginning cosmetic chemistry was, uh, I mean, that's why it was written for new people coming into the industry.
2: So what would you say to, um, to someone who wants to become a formulator? Funnily enough, I actually got a question on Instagram the other day from uh, a... A well, woman, girl in her twenties, who said that uh, you know she's studying chemical engineering and she really wants to become a formulator. And I, I told her about our podcast and about Chemist Corner. Uh, but what would we, what would you say to a to a person like that, who's like? right now trying to figure out what to study and, and how to get the right information.
1: Yeah, that's. I think you gave her very good advice. And, and I get those kinds of questions myself. In fact, I, I got them so much that uh, I've, I've written a number of uh, articles on Chemist Corner specifically about a cosmetic science career. Uh, The courses that are probably most relevant to somebody who's going to eventually be a formulator, of course, a a degree in chemistry is very helpful or chemical engineering. Some of the bigger companies prefer chemical engineers that they can kind of shape into their own mold. But chemistry or chemical engineering is probably the, the most suitable degree to get. A biology degree works, too. Uh, but people prefer chemistry. And then in chemistry, in the field, you want to study organic chemistry. Uh, now, the organic chemistry lab is probably the closest to formulating. The biggest difference there, however, is when we were mixing things together in organic chemistry, we were hoping there'd be some sort of chemical reaction that happens. As a formulator, you mix things together and you hope nothing happens. You know, So, so it's a little less like being an organic chemist. Um, another another course that's really helpful is analytical chemistry, and that d- teaches you to use instruments and to measure things. Uh, but but and then general chemistry, of course. But beyond that, some of the more detailed chemistry courses that you take uh, in college, they just aren't as applicable to formulating as uh, other things like the importance of surfactants, uh, preservation, and and that kinds of things. Uh,
0: do you get a lot of questions from students who are genuinely interested? in cosmetic science in terms of they are chemistry students who want to uh, specialize in that area or are a lot of your questions from people saying i want to start a cosmetic brand how do i go about it
1: well as as my website gets found a lot on google for the idea of chemistry and formulating cosmetics uh, i get a wide range of people now a number of people do contact me uh as As high school students, uh, as college students, uh, saying that, "Hey, I wanna, I wanna learn to be a formulator." And there's there's a bit of advice I would give to them about getting a degree degree in chemistry, studying it, and then uh, finding a job. You know, uh, networking with people in the Society of Cosmetic Chemists or the SCS in the UK. Uh, These are These are This is an excellent way to get into the industry. uh, Knowing somebody is the best way to get a job in the cosmetic industry. The other types of questions that I get are from people, a number of people who want to start their own line. They say, I want to start my own line. What do I do? Now, a lot of people are under the mistaken impression that to start their own line or to have a successful cosmetic product line They have to know how to make cosmetics Uh, in my view uh, the if you want a successful cosmetic line um, the most important thing to be successful is to focus on marketing and sales that's what sells the product if you want to be a scientist and you want to learn how to formulate products and be a cosmetic chemist then you should learn formulating and how to do that but if your goal is to have your own product line the best thing you can do is is to focus on the marketing piece, um, and you know I, I think it's it, I totally agree with you. If you are a brand owner, uh, you should get a basic introduction to how the products work, what they are, and what's in them, because that allows you to say, to make credible claims about what you can say that they can do. It gives you good expectations about the kinds of products that you could make and the kinds of problems that you can solve, and a lot of the claims that you can make. A lot of people skip that step uh, where they don't really want to know the science. They want to make the claim and then try to get uh, some information that will support whatever claims they want to make. Now, that's happened with marketing people uh, for cosmetics forever. It used to be. uh, that the marketing departments and the, the science departments were separate pieces of the uh, com- cosmetic company and the marketing people would come up with all the claims that they wanted to make, the craziest claims they could make, and then they went to the R&D people and said, well, we want to make these claims, how can we say them, and then it was up to the R&D people to say, a, you can't really claim that your product does that. That would make it a drug or that's unreasonable. And they would help shape the claims that they could actually make. Now, I think what's breaking down now is that you, you're getting a merging of these uh, marketing groups, brand owners, and the formulators and makers. And it's uh, when it all becomes the same person, there's no gatekeeper uh, to, to uh Putting the brakes on the types of claims that people can make.
0: You've probably, if you've listened to us, we sort of moan quite a lot about the new phrases that come up in the industry. And and actually I think it's reaching a point where um the consumer is being fed misinformation and and nobody wants to stand up uh as a brand and say, that's not right. You you know, that that's impossible or or this doesn't exist or um, I'm thinking of terms like clean beauty or um, you know some good ones, Katerina, don't
2: you? <laughs> yeah, clean beauty, green beauty. There are many. But you know, um, what's, um, on, that, on that note, I think I had an epiphany last week when I was at a seminar here in Chicago. Um, it was the uh, Fashion Institute of Chicago. And they were talking about green beauty or clean beauty. And what struck me was that you and I, since we are from Europe, we, for us, it's obvious, you know, any product that is sold legally on the market has been tested. Toxicologists have looked at the formulation, you know, you have to do challenge tests, you have to do stability tests, everything. Um, so it's safe to use. Whereas here in the States, you don't have that regulation. And just during the, seminar it kind of hit me like well of course because if you don't have any regulation then of course the term clean beauty and you talk about you know non-toxic products suddenly becomes very um relevant because here you don't have you know you don't have a central uh, point where you have to register your formula and um you know, anyone can anyone can go in and not anyone, but uh, you know, you can go in and see if there is uh, uh, any issues with the product, what the product contains, for example, and so on. So there, there is not as much control here, and that's where it struck me that actually now I get why people talk about clean beauty and non-toxic, um, because people can't really trust what's in the products in the same extent that people can trust them in the in the EU.
1: Yeah, it's. I think it's a a little uh, misunderstanding, which is out in the public about the regulations of cosmetics, the FDA in the United States essentially has the law that says it's illegal to sell unsafe cosmetic products. The real difference between, and and that's true in the EU too, the, the big difference between the two is that the EU sort of will... Uh, Gives guidelines on how do you prove that your product's safe, whereas in the United States, the FDA doesn't gives gives only a few guidelines on w- what what you have to do to prove that your product's safe, um, and and it's that that kind of is the difference there. And but the th- the thing that I think that uh, places uh, claims like clean beauty and green beauty work out uh, in the United States here especially there's um, there's a. There's a a big dose of cynicism among the population uh, when it comes to corporations. There's there's a anti-big corporation sense among a lot of consumers, and there's a we we always are sort of looking out for the scrappy young young new guy you know coming out, and those are the brands that are coming out with clean beauty and 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 really they those brands can't compete their marketing messages, they can't compete with being able to yell louder than the big companies who have these huge marketing budgets. I mean, P&G at one time was spending over $2 billion a year just in marketing their products. You can imagine a new brand, a small brand, having no way to get their message out over P&G. But one of the strategies that you can use is so you can't say your product is going to work better than someone else's but you could imply that your product is safer than somebody else's and that sort of fear marketing is effective uh, among at least among the the United States consumer but based on what i've seen it seems like that's effective too in the EU
0: so do you not have uh like we have annexes where there are ingredients listed uh, and you can use certain ingredients to a certain percentage in certain formulations and some ingredients are banned. Um, are there such lists in the USA?
1: Well, the FDA has banned uh, about 12 ingredients. Now, these are ingredients that used to be used in cosmetics years back, uh, but have been since found too unsafe to use. So there is that list. But um, There is no, the only positive list is the colorants. Colorants are essentially the FDA was created because people were getting injured by cosmetics that had uh, dangerous colorants in it. And so colorants, uh, uh, colorants have to be certified by the FDA to be used in cosmetics. That's why you can't, you can't go use a natural ingredient that's not on the approved colorant list in your cosmetics uh, in the United States. Uh, but colorants are the only ingredient that is regulated such. Uh, we don't have uh, the, the annex rules like you have in the EU. Uh, we do have the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board, though, who uh, they give safety limits on on what's reasonable for cosmetics. And the FDA uses uh, the public the, the, the opinion of the CIR Uh, as what they use to determine whether your product is safe or not. And so the industry, we follow what the CIR is, even though it's not a specific regulation that says you have to.
0: And do individual products have to go through toxicology before they can go to manufacture?
1: Well, you have to be able to prove your product is safe. And so some companies, uh, certainly all of the big companies will put all of their stuff through toxicology and safety testing. Some smaller companies though, they just, you know, make something in their kitchen and they uh, start selling their products on Etsy, you know? So this is why, uh, you know- I'd be very nervous. (laughs) i I am always nervous about at uh, seeing that i see I go to a farmer's market around my neighborhood and I see somebody with bottles of uh, cleanser that they're selling and you know you don't know if these people have uh, safety tested their products It's highly unlikely they have
2: yeah, I was also thinking about uh you know what kind of a horrible things can go into the product
1: right one one of the things that is uh, different here in the United States though is we have a very litigious uh, s- uh, society, too. And if your product injures somebody, they are not afraid to take you to court. And you don't really even have to prove that your product injured them. Uh, we we recently had a, a brand in the United States called Wen. I don't know if you guys have that. They're essentially a hair care brand, Wen. And they they just, uh, they instead of going to court, they settled for like $23 million settlement for people who claim that their product uh, made their hair fall out. Now there was—I looked at the formula. There's nothing in the formula that would make people's hair fall out, uh, but for them, there was enough people on the lawsuit that it was better for them to settle settle out of court, and uh, that changed their formula.
2: See, that is scary. That is scary.
1: Well, there, there is a whole list of, that's, that's kind of a new way that uh, people are making money in the beauty industry. There is, uh, <laughs> Tresemme had to uh, settle because they were making natural claims. Uh, the EOS, which is a lip balm brand, was uh, irritating people's lips, and they settled a, a lawsuit. And that's, that's really how regulation works in the United States for cosmetics. Wow
0: that makes that must make brands extremely nervous because um if uh, it's an identical formulation in Europe to one in um uh, the states and they're both cosmetics not over the counter or anything um if you're not getting those claims in Europe but you are getting them in America then that's an interesting thought
1: yeah it's it's a scary time for uh, brand owners but especially for i think for bigger brands uh, actually the, the scariest time is for the middle-sized companies. See, the small companies—they can create a product. Um, they're probably not going to touch enough people for them to, you know, it, it, for them to have to pay out a lot of money, or they'll, they're so small that if they get uh, scared with a lawsuit, they just go out of business and start a different one. Um, and the big companies, they have uh, enough money and enough big lawyers uh, that, you know, they'll fight something. Uh, you look at uh, Johnson and Johnson uh, in the United States, they got hit with a lawsuit about talc. And despite there being no evidence that talc is uh, causing cancer, uh, we've had juries award people millions of dollars specifically for that. Um but J&J has enough money to go to court and to fight it and they'll keep fighting it so they eventually I think they will prevail cuz the science is kind of on their side but you know it's those middle-sized companies who you know have a million to say 10 million dollars in sales where you could just you could just kill the company um and even if they haven't done anything wrong or provably wrong
2: see that is so different than in Europe cuz I mean, I'm not saying you're you're all safe and will never be sued in Europe as well. But if you have, um, and Sam, correct me here if I'm wrong, but if you have followed all the regulation, you're fairly safe, in terms of of uh, coming into trouble, running into trouble.
0: Yeah, because it, it goes back down the line. So um, if if it's your product that uh, is at issue, then. At what stage is it at issue? You go back to the manufacturers, their paperwork has to be in order. If their paperwork's in order, you go back to the toxicologist. He has to prove or she has to prove that that uh, everything there is correct and right in their database. If there's still an issue, then back to the original formulator. So there's a, there's a, like a chain uh, and everyone takes responsibility for each part of that chain. You have to dot the I's and, and cross the T's in, in every area and, and quite rightly, and, and so it should be.
1: It's really different. It's really just a different philosophy, though. Uh, I think what happens in the United States, uh, we like to encourage entrepreneurship, uh, and with that comes uh, some products which you know probably aren't as safe as the things that you can get in the EU. Uh, and the EU makes they want to make sure it's safe right out of the gate. In the United States, we want to give people a chance to just. Start something, see what happens, and if it's shown to be unsafe, then you get punished later uh, it's it's just a different philosophy i don't I don't think one is better over the other. I think if you looked if you compared products in the United States versus what you get in the EU you're gonna see that they're pretty much the same products yeah. Yet.
0: And you have the first billion dollar beauty companies, you know, with Kylie Jenner and and, uh, a couple of others, you know, huge successes that drive the industry.
1: Absolutely. And interestingly enough, just using technology that everybody else had access to, there's nothing special about those products except the marketing.
2: But you're so right there, Perry. And you know, Sam, we talked about this many times. I mean, both you and I, we love the science and we love the formulating. But at the end of the day, it is the story that, that sells. As you said, it, it, Paris, it's the marketing, and the people want to feel when they put up the put on the product, they want to feel like uh, uh, whoever's endorsing the brand, or want to feel the, I don't know, the Japanese rice peptides that has been sourced from some ancient well. You know what I mean? It's like they they really people want to indulge in that story.
1: I have to say, as a as a scientist and a formulator and the product maker, it always it always troubled me that the people uh, in the cosmetic industry who get all the accolades and and frankly all the money are the marketing and the salespeople. And when I kind of got uh, out of it and got into uh, you, know, you know doing online stuff more and, and out of the lab more, I see that it's really yeah you need to have a, a great product. That's true, but there's a lot of great products that don't sell anything. And there's a lot of mediocre products that become billion-dollar companies.
0: Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I was just going to say, Perry, do you uh, do you follow uh, many brands over here in Europe? Do, do you? Uh... Are you sort of interested in the brands that we have over here or is your main focus um, in the States? Does anything pique your interest that, that we're doing over here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I try to keep an eye on uh, everything that's going on around the world and the cosmetic industry. It, it's hard to keep up with, with everything going on. But, you know, when I was when I was formulating for I, I worked for a company, Alberto Culver, who eventually got bought out by Unilever. um what I found most interesting is that you know a lot of the top brands uh, selling in the United States were also the top brands in the UK, and they were the top brands in you know the EU and France and Italy. There were some local brands, but uh, I, you know, Sun Silk was a brand that was everywhere. Uh, and, and my focus was mostly on hair care, uh, but I I try to keep an eye on out on. Uh, Anything new coming out, but you know, mostly it's just the new kind of story spin and I, I, the the stories sp- stories that I mostly pique my interest are uh, for I- I- uh, ingredient stories. For example, uh, I know snail slime has been a big deal, and stem cells have been a big deal. And- at all of these things, and it's it it really does amaze me. You can see kind of the trickle it's almost the trickle up where uh the small brands will try something out, and if they they get a little uh interest in it you'll see the big brands coming out and uh just sort of adopting that
0: and i know your your the hair care background um perry, but uh you know has hair care formulation technology changed much since the sort of seventies really is where it started to change a lot here. Um, have you seen any big developments in in hair care that really um, interest you? The,
1: the The big developments in hair care are are more uh, how to support these stories. And so sulfate free, for example, is a big, I would say a big development in uh, shampoo technology. But it's essentially just supporting a story because the sulfate formulas really, uh, you can make sulfate formulas that work better than any of the sulfate-free options. And so what happens is that that companies um, try to get rid of traditional stuff that might have a bad name and make new things that can mimic the products that we already have. I see that a lot in cosmetics uh where we're taking technology that works perfectly fine, uh, we're taking away the ingredient that makes it work fine and trying to substitute ingredients, maybe that are more natural, maybe that are more sustainable or have better reputations online. And we're only making products that work as well as what was already out there. Maybe they don't even work as well. That that happened in the hair uh, the hairspray arena. Uh, in in the United States, uh, California passed a lot of volatile organic compounds or VOC regulations, which essentially uh, obsoleted the uh, the perfectly fine working hair spray products that there were. And the only way to get around the VOC regulations was you had to add water to your formulas. And so, arguably, the formulas that you that are hairsprays right now don't work nearly as well as the products that worked uh, in the early 1990s were available, but that's because of regulations. And that's really what I see happening throughout the industry. It's We're taking traditional products that worked at a certain level and trying to get rid of the, an offending ingredient and substitute it with something else, and you're not really improving things. We're just trying to get back to where we were using different ingredients. And uh, it is one of the unfortunate things that I see in the cosmetic industry. However, um, it's really hard to make something work better than what we already have.
2: One thing I've seen in the hair care industry, at least in Sweden, um, is that people are talking about washing their hair less. I was talking to, to a guy the other day, and he was saying, you know, he's aiming to wash his hair only once per month. Because and then you have um uh, you know talking about obviously if you wash your hair too much you know you you get excessive oils and you get a very oily hair but if you just let it be then uh you know nature will do its course and, and you'll be perfectly fine. Uh, I would say that's a trend that I, that is pretty. I, it's, it's not super strong in Sweden, but it's it's definitely something people are trying out and talking about to kind of um, move away from. Uh, the daily hair wash or every day or every other day hair wash.
1: Absolutely. Those things like that. Now, you see a trend like that and traditional companies would would say, we don't want that. (laughs) You know, we want to use every day. (laughs) Um, And so, but so any kind of company that would come up with a product, which is here, wash your hair once a month, that product would be pretty expensive if they're going to uh if if it's if it's going to kind of replace something that would have been everyday and they're going to start as a niche that's a for a small brand for a niche idea that's a great place to start because maybe that trend does catch on and maybe that's the way you go but that's that's going to that's why things start with small companies because a big company would just never do that yeah exactly
0: yeah that's right and and what i always point out is that every everyone's hair is is different it depends on, on your hair type. But also if you live in a city and you're on the underground twice a day getting in and out of work, uh, if your hair is unwashed, um, the amount of detritus that will be sticking to those hair follicles will be pretty grim and you will be noticing that on your pillowcase.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah.
0: It, there's, there's basic hygiene <laughs> uh, involved as well. There is an actual function to uh, to cleansing the hair.
2: But Sam, remember we're talking Sweden now, where it's all lovely and clean and fresh air everywhere. Of
0: course, yes, and the birds sing to you
1: every morning. I know. That.
2: Yeah, of course they do. <laughs> but Perry, what other trends do you see in the industry now?
1: Well, it's hard to get away from the the impact of 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 natural. Now, I, I think the impact of natural and green and and clean beauty. It's it's all kind of the same. Um, But I think it has a bigger impact on the cosmetic marketers than it does on the consumers. The reality is when you make products, uh, when you make alternative products using different technologies, uh, it's much harder to make products that work as well or better than the stuff that people can already use. And I think ultimately the consumer wants a product that works. Uh, they can talk about being green and sustainable, but if it's not getting their hair in the right shape that they want, or their their the makeup look that they want, or their skin in in great condition, you know they're not going to substitute. Uh, they're not going to sacrifice functionality for uh, social consciousness. I just don't think people work that way. And consumers, if you look at the best selling products right now, they're still pretty much standard products.
0: That's absolutely right. If it's not efficacious, that it's just not going to work.
2: That is uh, true, although I, I and maybe this is me the, the Swedish uh, perspective again, but I actually do think the natural and the sustain I mean the, the environmentally awareness of what the beauty industry is uh, well, is doing to the planet. I'm not saying the beauty industry is you know, as bad as uh, other industries, but still, I think consumers in general are getting more aware of how products are impacting the world and, and, um, you know, from waste to, uh, palm oil to, and everything in between. So I think, um, I think that is something that will, will become stronger. I hope at least.
1: Oh, I, I agree with you. And one of the areas where you can see that happening is it's not just on the brand level, but it's on the store level and stores are coming up with sustainability requirements for people, that are gonna supply them. And, and I see Amazon will start doing this too. And it's when the distributors, uh, uh, the products to the consumers, when they are starting to force their suppliers to do that, well, then people have to sit up and take notice.
0: I do have a worry about this area. Um, you know, it's much more nuanced and complex than the consumer understands it to be. So for instance, take palm oil. Palm oil is actually, is probably the most sustainable and high yielding uh, ingredient because an acre of palm oil, uh, the yield and calorie content of that, uh, it takes 10 times the amount of land to plant sunflower seed than it does with an acre of palm oil. So you've got an acre of palm oil or 10 acres of sunflower seed to get the same amount of oil. Um, And I know palm oil had a a bad run because there was uh, issues with with uh, people rushing to plant it. Um, but but RSPO have now uh, restrained that. Um, and, and actually, palm oil has a year, or uh, a 25-year life cycle, and it produces the nut year-round, whereas rapeseed oil and sunflower seed oil, they have to be replanted every year. You've got tractors using diesel every year, replanting, harvesting, replanting, harvesting. Um, so, you know, it's much more complicated than... the consumer wants to address. And also if they take a flight, a Virgin flight from Heathrow to New York, 20% of that fuel tank is palm oil. So they're quite happy to do that. But the cosmetics industry takes a tiny percentage of palm oil compared to food and um, agrochemicals and and the general uh, other industries. So I I just don't think the consumer is educated enough to make those sweeping statements um, about those ingredients.
1: It's one of the challenges with the beauty industry, though, we have different forces and some forces uh, benefit from misinforming consumers Uh, and particularly, you know, the brands that want to claim that they're sustainable and they're better than the big guys they don't really know that they are but they can sell that story and so they're motivated to misinform uh because it helps their marketing it's it's unfortunate and and i agree with you if you look at the impact that the cosmetic industry has when compared to other things uh it it pales in comparison it's 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 laughable that uh hairsprays are regulated in california uh, much more strictly than uh car exhaust uh, but, you know, people look at uh, cosmetic, the cosmetic industry as, as kind of a a frivolous extra thing. And so it's a lot easier to pass regulations uh, in this industry than it is to something like transportation.
0: I think that if, if people stopped washing their hair and stopped using deodorant and stopped washing and didn't have any makeup and I mean, that I'm sure that'd be fine, but didn't shave or use shaving foam and... You know it, it is a sort of frivolous but also it it actually is part of a part of how we behave and and how we present ourselves and how we feel about ourselves and then you get into all this psychological side of of the industry um so i agree with you perry you know it isn't an essential but um but nevertheless i think i think we do have benefits as an industry to to the way we feel about ourselves
1: oh i i absolutely agree with you i mean i've I wouldn't have stayed in the cosmetic industry uh, this long if I didn't think it was uh, worthwhile. And and really, the products make people happy, and so how can that be bad?
2: <laughs> I have another question for you, Perry. And that's um, going back to what we were talking about before. Um, you know, p- people starting out uh, in the cosmetic corner, and also in your podcast, you you had very good tips i would say for someone who wants to start a lab or start you know everything from equipment to books and so on um maybe you can can you share some of those like uh, what are the main things to think about if you want to uh, start a lab and not just make your products in your kitchen
1: sure um i'd be, i'd be happy to now you know, the if you want to start a cosmetic lab, a lot of people, now the rules are going to be different in the EU than the United States. And I sort of have a US perspective. Uh, here, we're a little less uh, strictly regulated. And so somebody can go in their kitchen and, and start mixing things up. Although there there are guidelines with the FDA that says, you know, you can't Make products in the area where you make food, for example. so, but if if you want to set up a lab, uh, you know you need the first thing you're gonna need is a good mixer. Now, people i've I've seen on YouTube and or places where people use these these hand mixers or these stick blenders. Uh, those things maybe would be appropriate for a, a hobby. But if you really want to make products that you can use, you get, you want to get a center stir mixer and uh, essentially where you can control the RPMs, you can control the size of the paddle that you use. And it's just a uh, much more versatile and, and better instrument. You're also going to need a hot plate. Um, cosmetics. Cosmetics. Uh, you aren't like it's not like in college where you needed a Bunsen burner where you need to heat stuff up really hot. Uh, but you do have to be able to boil water and uh, a hot plate that can go up to like 200 degrees Celsius is is pretty useful. Then you of course, you need beakers. Uh, to 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 mix up all your things, and you need a good scale. You can't you can't do formulating by uh, measuring out cups and teaspoons and and volumetric things. You really have to use grams and 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 mass measurements. And so if you get those are kind of all the things that you need: a, a scale, a, a hot plate, a mixer, and containers. And uh, that pretty much could get you started. And, and of course, then you, of course you need uh, the raw materials, because without raw materials, you're just mixing water, I guess.
2: I'm so glad you said grams and not ounces ounces, or, or pounds or anything. I'm still learning that.
1: Uh, oh, yeah. You know, in the United States, we still have that uh, dreaded pounds and ounces, but uh, we scientists try to talk in terms of metrics. The You know, the only place that I think uh, metrics falls down is uh, I do prefer our temperature uh, when you're talking about the weather, because it, it feels better to me to be able to say, you know, it's over a hundred degrees, than to say it's like I don't know, thirty-five or something. But
2: Fahrenheit is the worst.
1: <laughs> no, I would agree with you. Like for for recipes and things and formulas, it's terrible. But for the weather,
2: no, it doesn't make sense.
1: <laughs> Perry, uh,
0: it's been fantastic to speak with you. Katerina, have you got any more? Do you want to speak talk about anything else with Perry?
2: I mean, I have so many questions, but but you know, I'm gonna let you off the hook, Perry. Now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll save it for another time.
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You'll have to come back.
1: Uh, so do uh,
0: go and follow Perry. He's he's absolutely brilliant. So on Twitter, it's at Chemist Corner uh, and at chem, um, chemistcorner.com. um He's full of uh, brilliant advice. Uh, great education. And I really recommend um that that you get involved.
1: Well, thank you so much, Sam and uh Katerina. And uh keep up the great work. I enjoy the podcast and you guys are are doing excellent work.
2: Sam, did you hear that? We're doing great good work.
0: i I've got it on record. I've got it recorded. <laughs> Yay. Thanks, Perry, so much.
1: <laughs> well, I have to say I'm I'm I've been amused at uh, your uh, listening to your uh, adventures on Amazon and, and trying to get your products with them. I've gone through that process and it wasn't it wasn't fun but you got there in the end. I did get there in the end. Yeah, um I I partnered with a friend of mine and we launched a shampoo conditioner uh, uh line. It was really my intention just to launch it. I wanted to demonstrate how you go through and launch it and then get it on Amazon and then he was going to take it over from there. And and that's kind of how it went, so.
0: Are you still on that, Perry?
1: Uh yeah, yeah. Um the the, the product is called Feek, P-H-I-Q-U-E. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to sell out the the first inventory run.
0: Brilliant. I'm going to check that out. And in fact, I think, uh, is it available in Europe? Can we get it over here?
1: I don't think so.
0: so. Boo. <laughs> uh,
2: I can order. I'll, Sam, I'll order some and I'll bring it when I go to London.
0: Yes, that's fantastic. All right. Well, listen, um, really great to speak to you both from Chicago. And, and thanks once again.
2: Yeah, thanks. Thank you.